Hello, and welcome to the Other Minds podcast. I'm Joseph Bohegan. Other Minds, founded in 1993 in San Francisco by Charles Amerkanian and Jim Newman, is devoted to championing the most original voices in new and experimental music. On season two of the podcast, we're talking with the featured composers from our 27th Other Minds Festival, which will take place November 14th to 19th, 2023, at the Taub Atrium Theater and Gray Area in San Francisco. Today, I'm joined by Carl Stone. Stone is one of the pioneers of live computer music, having used computers in live performance since 1986. Hailed by the Village Voice as the king of sampling, today he divides his time between Japan and Los Angeles between his busy international touring schedule. Welcome to the podcast, Carl. It's great to be here. Could you tell us about your approach to sampling and how it's evolved over the years? I know there's a very good story about how you started with this. Yeah, the kind of impetus for the whole thing with sampling for me came from my work when I was a student at CalArts back in the long time ago, back in the 70s. I've told this story uh, before, but it bears repeating because it is sort of seminal to my work. I had a job in the CalArts Music Library, basically backing up all the LPs in their music collection onto the archive medium of the time, which was, remember, this is 1973, the archive medium was the cassette, nothing digital or anything like that. So my job was to take every album in the library and dub it onto cassette. Because, you know, the records themselves were very often quite rare, precious things brought from all over the world by the people in the in the world music department and also a lot of kind of obscure recordings and so on. So it really was, I think, thoughtful to back these things up because, after all, you know, these LPs were available freely to students and, you know, they get worn out, they get damaged, scratched, warped, stolen, whatever. So... They set me up in a dark windowless room with tape recorder and turntable. And the first thing I realized was that there was absolutely no way that this job could be accomplished with just one turntable and one tape recorder, cassette recorder. So I lobbied to expand and they gave me a total of three in the end. So I would run three backups at a time and I could choose sort of the music that I would be backing up. And I could monitor what was going on with the recording. So, you know, I might set up some Baroque music on turntable one, maybe some electronic music on turntable two, some music from Africa or or Indonesia on turntable three. And I could listen to things simultaneously. And I began to sort of notice collisions and sort of happenstance and sort of interesting contexts, new contexts that were, in a sense, random, but to me, very interesting. And it sort of got me into the idea of trying to duplicate this notion of recontextualizing music. It put the idea in my head, and I began to experiment in the electronic music studios at CalArts with the tape recorders there. And... You know, from the time around 1973 that I started working with these musical materials as a starting point for my own work, I moved my interest overall from synthesis into the notion of sampling. And I think that this was kind of the starting point for my approach today. 
And you studied with Morin Sabotnik when you were at CalArts, right? He'll also be performing at the festival the night before. So could you tell us about your relationship with him and his influence on you? Well, his influence was monumental. He was a great teacher for many reasons. I didn't really study like the techniques of synthesis or you know any of the technical aspects with him. I did that with Barry Schrader, who was also on the faculty. But for Mort, he had a wonderful approach to listening to music and analyzing music, and his classes were also full of personal anecdotes, which were at sometimes very inspirational. So uh, it was, you know, wonderful to work with him from 1973. He was the person who ultimately got me into CalArts after some Sturm und Drang. And, you know, we continued. Uh, of course, uh, I always uh, try to meet with him when I'm in his territory in New York, and we've met up in Tokyo and in uh, other far-flung places. It's so wonderful that he'll be on the same festival as I am very proud to have been his student. You sample pretty widely in terms of genre. Are there particular kinds of recordings that you're drawn to? You know, what happens really is that a musical moment might stick out, and I'm kind of interested in exploring what makes this particular moment interesting, or somehow, why did it catch my ear? And the process then becomes how to explore this in a compositional fashion, so that my exploration of what's going on in the sample is also revealed to the listener. This is kind of my approach. And there isn't any one particular thing that I can cite as being, you know, a criterion for becoming musical fodder. As you say, you know, my my brief is fairly broad. I don't discriminate. The only thing I, I'm not interested in working with is stuff that's already been processed. I never, you know, work with like existing electronic music or uh, music that's been in any way already sort of experimentalized. I'm more interested in going to the sources, uh, ethnographic recordings, and produced materials from the commercial landscape and so on. Are the cultural meanings of these recordings important either to your compositional process or to how the listener might hear your music? Well, that's actually a very interesting question. For me, they're not really what I am considering when I'm using them. Although uh, sometimes for ironical purposes, I might. But overall, I would say not so much. But it's kind of a dilemma because it's a it creates a gap between me and the audience. Because let's say, just for example, you use as a starting point some musical material, some gagaku which is a classical music form in Japan, imperial court music, goes back many centuries. Gagaku, the sound of gagaku, means something very different for a Japanese person listening, for a Japanese audience, than it does for someone anywhere else in the world. Or with my piece Kamiyabara, which used field recordings from Tokyo, often very banal materials, banal in the sense that they were like, you know, the train is arriving or the elevator is going up or, you know, would you like to buy a potato? That kind of thing. As non-Japanese speakers would listen to these materials, you know, in a more abstract and musical way, but of course for Japanese themselves, their first impression is just, you know, the train is coming, 
who cares? Uh, you know, why is this in a piece of music? So cultural context is important in the sense that I've come to realize that different audiences will take the musical material that I'm using in different ways, depending on their familiarity, their knowledge, how much it is part of their own cultural gestalt. Sure. And I suppose that that could be said about a lot, if not all music, that it has cultural meaning to different people. And yes. as the composer, we we don't have any control over necessarily how somebody is going to hear uh, particular sounds. But, well, that's right. That's right. And, you know, Kamiya Bar, the, uh, it's an album that I did with these environmental sounds from Japan, never really caught on in Japan because I think people took it as sort of like almost a kind of junk art. You know, who cares that you're, you know, making a composition out of the the theme music from a camera store or a TV commercial that everyone's heard a million times. And since you've mentioned Japan, you've lived in Japan for how long now? 22 years. 22 years. How did you end up there? Well, I've been going to Japan since the 80s. I was first there. I was invited by Aki Takahashi, the pianist. She commissioned me to write a piece for her. And so in 1984, I went and we performed it together. And I was so fascinated by the place that I applied for a subsidy from the Asian Cultural Council, and they granted me six months from 1988 to 1989. It crossed over the new year. And, you know, that led to people becoming familiar with my music and many additional opportunities. So I was going to Japan almost every year up until the time when I was offered a job teaching at a university and that was 2001. And so I yeah, took the job and sort of moved my whole operation to Japan. And uh, I've been there ever since. Have Japanese music or other sounds that you found there been of particular influence since you moved there? Well, what's interesting about the Japanese urban soundscape is how, how much it changes over time. A lot of the, the sounds that existed Back when I did my initial set of recordings in 88, 89, a lot of those sounds are gone now. And it's almost like a, I don't mean to make light of it, but it's kind of like a climate change or something like that, where the environment is changing very, very quickly. And so there's a nostalgia for some of these old sounds. And there's actually a repository for the environmental sounds that are maintained by an institute in, in Japan. And so I'm interested in kind of the evolution of these environmental sounds. In Japanese music, of course, you have a chance to experience firsthand a lot of classical music, folk music in festivals. And then, you know, the Japanese music scene is quite interesting and unique. So all of this has an influence, I think, on me either consciously or, or perhaps more sort of unconsciously through, you know, just osmosis or creeping in through my my pores. You have a quite busy performance schedule. I know you were a very early adopter of performing live computer music. So what kind of technologies do you use in live performance and how has that changed since the 80s? Well, it's gotten a lot more compact and a lot more efficient. In the 80s, going on the road with a computer meant taking something like a Mac Plus sized computer, you'd have to lug it on the plane, and a lot of uh, MIDI gear, a sampler, a synthesizer, an uh, interface, blah, blah, blah. Usually it would be like two rack cases and a uh, big computer. Now I can do it all on one laptop. Running a program 
well, it's a programming language where I write my own code. Uh, it's a programming language called Max from a company called Cycling74. And so I could do it all now with one computer and no additional hardware. I use a iPad sometimes as a controller, but the computer itself is doing all the heavy audio processing. The other upside to technology today is the precision you have, as opposed to back in the 80s, where you know you were lucky if you could get precision down to one millisecond, which sounds like a lot, like a very discrete precision, but it's actually not. You can get it down more to the sample level where you're at 48,000 points in a second and sort of move things around at that level. So the level of precision being what it is now is a great thing. Would you describe your approach as process-based? Something that came to mind with some of the pieces on your recent Unseen Worlds release. Yeah, my early influences come from music where the, the process of the piece informs the form and also the content. Works like uh, Steve Reich, It's Gonna Rain, or um, Alvin Lussier, I Am Sitting in a Room. These pieces are almost, uh, they're kind of so fundamentally influential to me. And some, but not all of the works that are on the new release that just came out on Unseen Worlds, use a kind of systematic approach where you sort of start with something and then the process allows the composition to unfold where form and the content are dictated by the process itself. And is that process at all related to the technology, like what's coming first? It's enabled by the technology, but what's coming first is my interest in exploring a new process, which comes from the technology. I guess you could say that, yes. It's a loop, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of a loop. That's true. I would say that, you know, of the pieces on the album, probably the single best example of this kind of process revealing itself, well, there are a couple, but the shorter one would be the piece Moranyak, which is very, very much defined by a process of enfolding layers and layers through a technical approach. So we mentioned you have a release that came out as of the day that we're recording right now on August 4th on Unseen Worlds, and it covers your music from 1972 to 2022, so covering 50 years of your career. Maybe we can talk about one of your earlier pieces, Vim. Well, Vim, I mean, the piece kind of reveals itself, so I don't know if I really want to say exactly like what the source material is, although it, it's pretty obvious to anyone who has paid attention to surf music from the 1960s. But it was one of the early attempts to use a sampler to kind of cut up a familiar piece of music, something that was certainly in the ear set and the mindset of people attuned to popular culture in the 60s and 70s, and to cut things up at a, a measure level, not at a sample level. What I mean is not a microscopic level, but sort of based on musical phrases, dissecting them, separating them, moving them around in the manner of a mosaic and layering them on top of each other, experimenting with what would happen if you did something like this with, you know, diaphonic musical material and that had also a certain amount of cultural resonance. So, I mean, that's kind of what the piece is about. It's something that I wrote in 1987. It combines both sampled sound and uh, synthesized sound, which is something I don't really do anymore. I sort of dropped all the synthesis 
by the wayside. recent piece the one that i was particularly drawn to was kusta ah yeah kusta is something that could not have been done really back in the 80s it's based on well uh, i don't know how deep into audio theory we want to go but it's using fast fourier transformation it's a technique I've used in different ways over different pieces, but basically, metaphorically, let's talk about it more on a metaphorical level. It's like placing the skin of one piece of music over the body of another so that you have this kind of ambiguity and complexity where the spectra of one piece of music is informing the overall kind of dynamic shape of another. So it's got that kind of complexity and that kind of ambiguity. And at the same time, the materials that I chose for this give it a kind of uh, danceability as well. Mm-hmm. 
performing on the Friday night of the Other Minds Festival at the Taub Atrium Theater with Paul Drescher, Ned Rothenberg, and Sarah Cahill. Can you tell us about what's in store for that particular performance? Well, Paul Drescher is, I think, uh, well-known to people in the, well, he's well-known everywhere, really, but because of his basis in the San Francisco Bay Area, I think that uh, the audiences uh, at the Other Minds Festival will probably have encountered him and his wonderful musical instruments, which are so rich and so expressive. He and Ned Rothenberg are longtime associates. Ned Rothenberg is a multi-wind player based in New York, and he and Paul have worked together. They've had projects together, and I am really excited about the chance to work with these two. And what I do in this kind of situation 
is actually take input from both of the instrumentalists so that I'll be capturing the sound from Paul and his instruments, also the sounds from Ned Rothenberg and his instruments. He plays shakuhachi, bass clarinet, alto, and then sort of putting them into my own, it's almost like a... um, Osterizer or a musical mixer, taking things, uh, also a blender. Somehow I'm thinking in culinary terms, but taking these materials, mixing them up, refeeding them out to the audience uh, after processing so that it becomes uh, something that's greater than the sum of the parts. And you'll be doing a disclavier piece with Sarah Cahill? Yeah, we haven't quite figured out if we'll do a disclavier piece or one of my pieces for regular piano. Kind of depends on getting hold of a disclavier. But you know, one way or the other, I've I've written uh, several pieces for Sarah, and also some of my other piano pieces. She's performed wonderfully, and she, of course, is a great local hero who's not just local but uh, famous internationally. And you'll also be performing the following Sunday night, November 19th, at Gray Area. So could you tell us about that performance? Yes. I'm very excited about this because it is the world premiere of a new piece, an evening-long piece for multi-channel sound with uh, visuals, which I've been collecting in Tokyo using drone footage from Tokyo that I commissioned, sort of exploring the city from a bird's-eye level, and also with a guest performer of a um, vocalist from Japan who I've worked with in the past who goes by the name Akai Hirume. And Akai Hirume is someone with wonderful wide vocal technique. And she's also a songwriter, but in this case will be integrating her vocalization into music, which I have composed, distributed throughout the gray area, which, you know, is a fantastic facility optimized for multi-channel sound and multiple uh, projections. So I'm very excited about this. You can hear Carl Stone perform at Other Minds Festival 27 on November 17th, 2023 at the Taub Atrium Theater and on November 19th at Gray Area in San Francisco. Thank you, Carl, for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Joseph. This has been an episode of the Other Minds podcast, brought to you by Other Minds. Our 27th festival is November 14th to 19th, 2023, at the Taub Atrium Theater and Gray Area in San Francisco. Join us again next week.